Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in politics. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague Amanda Turkle. Hello. And special guest Richard Allen Smith, a former Army sergeant and Afghanistan war veteran. Richard, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So this week's biggest politics news was, of course, created by Donald Trump and seemingly out of thin air, he made a controversy over respecting people in the military and how what he does to honor the families of those who've died in service to our country. It started uh, with question at a press conference about why hadn't he said anything about people who were killed in Niger. And in response to this question, Trump said, well, you know, I call people, I call all the uh, uh, Gold Star families and – my predecessors didn't. And everyone's <laughs> like, actually untrue. Like, right. Everyone's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? That's just not true. Like within 30 seconds. But then it's it's like we're on day four of the story. So Richard, what's going on with Trump? What does he think of people in the military? Is this strategic or just completely airheaded stupidity? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't think it's out of thin air. Uh, I think if you look, there's a pattern of this, this sort of thing with Donald Trump, right? Even just this week. Um, what I think would be like the top Trump in the military story, um, if not for all this other stuff, is that the Army Reserve banned uh, enlistment for green card holders this week, right? Um, and this is uh, – I've encountered some people that don't know that green card holders can enlist in the military. Uh, but it's actually a, you know centuries, actually, an old practice of bringing immigrants into the military. There are skills that immigrants often have, uh, like you know, language skills or cultural analysis and things like that that we need. Uh, there's a report, I think, from Center for Immigration Policy that says that the Army can't meet its recruitment goals without immigrants. So this is a longstanding practice. And when I was in Afghanistan, I actually helped some uh, immigrant soldiers get their citizenship because it's it's expedited. If you're serving overseas in the military, you can skip the seven-year waiting period um, and and apply for citizenship right away, and then your citizenship is expedited. So we actually had guys that applied for citizenship when we first got to Afghanistan. We were there for uh, uh, 14 months, um, and they took the oath of citizenship in theater you know, with a rifle strapped across their back, uh, left the United States to deploy as green card holders, came back as full-fledged United States citizens. Um, so that's a thing that happened this week, right? And then President you- Trump said no to that. He restricted that well, policy. They, they restricted the policy on, on when service-wide uh, green card – uh, soldiers could enter the military. It used to be as long as your background check okay. was initiated, uh, you could go to boot camp. They changed it to it has to be completed. But the problem with that is you have to be in a hold status uh, where you've you know signed your paperwork and say I'm going to basic training, but you haven't shipped Re- out restricted yet. Restricted the and, policy, and right. I'm assuming this is for security reasons, is what they're saying. Have there any right. ever been security problems with this program? I, I I haven't done the research on that. I've you know I stay pretty abreast of this stuff, and I've never heard of anything. Um, 
I mean, like the the cases that you would think of would be like uh, the Akbar case from early in the Iraq War, the uh, 101st Airborne Soldier who fragged his his uh, platoon mates, um, and he was an active duty soldier. He wasn't a reservist. Uh, but but the second of order effect of this policy was that the Army Reserve didn't have the uh, a, a like hold room, uh, so to speak for these folks for more than a year, which is how long it takes to complete these background checks, especially if you're not from the United States and your your records aren't here. Um, So that's what happened there. Um, But you can go back to uh, um, the beginning of his campaign where he's attacking John McCain. He's saying he wants to shoot – or Bo Bergdahl should be shot. Um, uh, What else was there in the campaign? He attacked the generals and said they were all losing in Afghanistan and he was going to fire them all. Uh, He attacked John McCain again this week. That's the third thing that he's done. He's constantly feuding with John McCain. Yeah, yeah. And then the trans ban that has now sort of taken this form where there's a study about it and it's unsure and it's looking like it's going to be a ban on entry. But when he first announced that policy, he was going to kick currently honorably serving uh, uh, military members who are transgender out of the military, right? Um, that is not something regardless, I think, it, it, this issue has been polled, I, I believe, and you know, even social conservatives, if you meet the requirements and you're already in the military, we shouldn't take that away from you. Maybe they believe you shouldn't be able to get, be in there in the first place, but aside from the, uh, you know, like Elaine Donnelly's of the world, there isn't a big outcry that there are, that, you know, calling for those service members to be kicked out. And look, even before the campaign, you go back just through his history as a human, right, where he uh, uh, was tried to get homeless veterans kicked off of Fifth Avenue because they personally disgusted him. Um, there's incidents like this throughout his history. This is not an anomaly that, that, that Donald Trump would attack the military. This is who he is. So it's a pattern of clear disrespect. But on the other hand, as you have written, he's surrounding himself with the military, with generals. Like those are the the people who seem most competent and have the most power within his administration. So there's disrespect for the military, but also co-opting the military and giving them power. What do you make of that? Well, this is like everything else with Trump, right? It, it all comes back to submission. He wants everything and everyone to be under the purview of Trump and acknowledge that, that Trump has control over them. So – he surrounds himself with the military folks, the generals that, you know, every place he can find, you know, a slot to stick one in. Um, and I think early in the administration, there was some hope within the military and veteran community that with people, folks like Mattis and Kelly, who have been incredibly disappointing since coming into the Trump administration. We, but, you know, I, I was one of the people saying, you know, th- these guys are going to be good. They're going to make sure we're OK. And they haven't been. Um, but I think to me, it looks like he is bringing them close to him for that, to achieve that submission. You have you know, the story of John Kelly, who said he had never been spoken to in 35 years of, of military service the way that Donald Trump spoke to him. And look, I, I've been a private in the Army. I know how you get spoken to in the military and basic training in a combat theater. Um, it's got to be pretty salty to, to beat that. So I think that's what it is. He, he wants to – look, Donald Trump doesn't consider himself a president in the way we traditionally think about it. Uh, it, the way I think him and his family consider the presidency is that this was a a corporate takeover by the Trump organization of the government of the United States. And the same way that like Apple or Microsoft or somebody will buy a, a you know app or something that someone has created that they don't have any intention of marketing, but it has like one feature right, yeah. that they want to put into like their instant messenger thing or um, – you know, email client or whatever. And so they buy the whole company and they take that thing. I, I really think that's put part of Trump surrounding himself with, with military personnel, retired and active duty is, right? He is 
trying to get this one feature, which is respect and honor, because in a country where we increasingly uh, um, have less and less respect for institutions, the military is the single most respected uh, institution in America. Gallup poll every year finds this you know, for several years running, running now. And I, I really think that's what he's after. He knows or believes that if he surrounds himself with these people, he can sort of get the reflection of their res- the respect and honor that they have um, onto himself. Right. And he likes appearing tough, too, and macho. And he thinks that's yeah. what the military is about. I mean, when he wanted to hold the military parade down Constitution Avenue around inauguration – and just, you know, you hear that in the rhetoric he uses, too, where he talks about – what's he talking about? Like beating the he hell uses, out of someone yeah. and like things like that. He thinks that's – Bombing the, the shit out of ISIS, right. and it's even, fire and fury yes, for North Korea. Yes, it's even his attack on John McCain. You know, I, I, I don't respect him because he was captured. He's a loser. I like people who aren't captured. You know, that's what he thinks I the like military is about. I like draft dodgers personally. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda Turkle, you wrote a piece this week about what Donald Trump was trying to do with his claim that he's compassionate toward Gold Star families and how it sort of backfired because of who he is. Right. He was getting criticism for not saying anything more than a week later after these soldiers were were killed in Niger. And so he was asked about it at a press conference and he could have taken the moment to pay his respects to them, and it would have been over. But instead, he had to use the moment to brag about himself and to talk about how, you know, I write letters, I make calls, no one else makes calls, to show that I do care. I care more than Obama did, and I guess more than Bush did. Uh, But it completely backfired because he is incapable of empathy. He's not good at showing, you know, caring human emotions. And so sure enough, we found out that when he did talk to the widow of one of these soldiers, he said, to her, look, he knew what he signed up for. But, you know, it's sad anyway when it happens. Who talks like that? The, the, the pregnant widow, <laughs> right, she was of pregnant. a soldier like like 12 days after her Who husband like has died, has been killed. And, and again, like I, I, I'm sure the audience listening here doesn't need to be reminded of this, but I feel like we have to say it. This is the second time he has attacked a Gold Star family. Like this, right. this is a rerun. This right. is not new. Right. It recalls uh, his attacks on Kazir Khan right. during the uh, Republican convention that – who he just went after, for gratuitously weeks. attacked his wife mm-hmm. for not talking. So the additional fallout from this was that reporters called the Gold Star families of basically everyone who has died so far this year overseas. And it came out that Trump had called the guy who complained because he and his wife were divorced. Only she would benefit from the survivor's benefit that the military gives to uh, family members. And so Trump said – on the spot, you know, I'll send you a check for $25,000. And then the Washington Post talked to this guy several months later, and there was no check. Not only a check, but he was going to set up an online fundraiser for him, too. So I think it, it shows that Trump will make promises that he should know he can't keep and that he will get caught. And it's so amazingly brazen and even though we're already familiar with the pattern, it's still shocking today. I mean, I would really like – this is not going to happen, but to get Trump under oath about that call, right? Like because we know when he's been under oath before to have to testify about things, these like crazy justifications he makes for like, oh, yeah, I actually did – what was the one where uh, – when he was, his net worth was based on how he feels during the day? He had sued an author who had claimed he in a book that he was not as rich as he'd said. And under oath, when it came time to speak to 
his assets and such and things he'd done, he admitted he was a liar. Right. And then there was like – if, if I'm remembering correctly, there was another situation where he like was supposed to be like one of the hosts, like, cause, cause, which means in the fundraising world that you wrote one of the biggest checks for an event and they never got the check. And he said because he put his name on it and his name has PR value that that was a – you know there could be a monetary value associated oh, with that. Oh, he did that kind of, of thing a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. So like I, I – I, I'd like to hear him explain like what the definition is of of you know giving that guy a twenty five thousand dollar check like how like because he's not going to say oh yeah I forgot about that that's well, not who he is well Richard well apparently the, you know, the White House said after the post called him the White House was like f you Washington Post the checks in the mail, in the mail. which is the classic thing that like an alcoholic father says it's like that's what about. we've all told like like Nelnet right <laughs> right so here's my question Richard Allen Smith what fallout could there be from this my theory is that there will be none. Because it is so similar to the pattern we'd seen before with the attacks on John McCain early in the campaign, the attacks on Gold Star family late in the campaign. It's simply a replay of earlier Trump hits, even though there's a real crescendo of outrage among everybody in politics. Do you think there's any chance that this time would be different? I I don't know that there will be any political repercussions just because at this point, if you're sticking with Trump, like what is that like? To quote him or, or, or uh, refer back to him, I don't have the actual quote, but you know he could shoot a guy in Fifth Avenue, and some of these people would still be like, "Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, you know, he wasn't making." He knew what he was great. getting into. Yeah, yeah. What I do think you're going to see, and I think might be a much more insidious problem, is the uh, how this affects going forward, and not just this one incident, but you know all this you know, catalog of things we've talked about affects his ability to operate his administration in the Pentagon and whatnot. We know that executive appointees rotate out periodically. I would guess – I mean we've already seen that this administration has a pretty high political appointee t- turnover rate. Um, you know, at, at some point there's going to be uh, assistant secretaries and deputy assistant secretaries at state and, and DOD and even White House advisors, NSC staff uh, who are going to leave and he's going to need to replace those people. And when you start going down like the list of folks that are qualified for those jobs, how many people – are going to want to take that job and and suffer through this kind of stuff, right? Um, I think that's going to have uh, um, really, really consequential uh, um, results for those agencies. But for us too as American people, right? Like those uh, – for folks that have never worked in the federal government, like assistant secretaries and, and uh, deputy assistant secretaries and undersecretaries, like those are the folks that are like really you know, elbow deep in the policies – and implementation and things like that. And so when you have like things like a quadrennial defense review or, or you know, any sort of uh, event happening in the world that you need good staff people and good management of those people to develop good policy and implement it, uh, they're going to be severely handicapped because people just don't want to be a part of this. It's only been nine months. We've already – there's been pretty extensive reporting of the uh, emptying out of the State Department and the lack of uh, – the loss of extremely experienced people there who are career civil service pr- professionals. My theory would be that it's it's going to be a crisis that r- will really expose uh, the underlying weaknesses that that the Trump administration could be creating within agencies like the state and DOD. Sure, and I, I mean I think this is this is going to be a long problem to fix. This is going to go beyond the Trump administration. Hopefully, that's only you know three more years away. The end of that, uh, maybe seven, um, but. This is impacting our relationships with people around the world. Like some of those State Department folks are good at what they do. Like they're incredibly intelligent people and, and good, you know, 
tactically, we would call them the military. I don't know what you call them the uh, diplomatic world, but uh, they have relationships too throughout the international community, the diplomatic community, community and those are, are being damaged now. They're going to have to be repaired and just the standing of the world that when we you know, say we're going to do something, whether you know, things like the Iran deal or the Paris Accords, that you know, our word is valid and that we, we can be relied on to do that. It's, that is not something that is, uh, uh, I think a lot of nations can, can put their money behind right now. All right. Richard Allen Smith, Amanda Turkle, thanks so much. And before we get to the rest of the show, I have something really exciting to share with you to coincide with the HuffPost Listen to America bus tour. We have a brand new podcast for you to check out. It's called I'm Still Here. It's about stories of adversity and survival from all over America. The first episode is available now. It's about the story of a young transgender girl in North Carolina. Here's a promo for the series. Check it out. I remember the Twitter feed just like blowing up. Sick Temple shooting, hashtag multiple shooters was coming in, multiple dead. And it it just, it chilled my blood. I, I was, I just had this sinking feeling like this is my backyard. Katrina, Ferguson, Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after when the national news cycle moves on? Coming Wednesday, October 18th, I'm Still Here, a new HuffPost podcast. I'm part of the Ferguson Frontline. Those looking for liberation are still here, still fighting. This is not an epidemic, but it's an epidemic of epidemics. It's the greatest public health threat in my lifetime. When HB2 gets passed, you're even more fucked. When you're in a place like that, there is no silver lining in day-to-day life, period. On this podcast, we'll visit communities whose tales of adversity have put them on the map, and we'll explore what survival in America really looks like. Because when the controversies of our time become politicized, we forget about the people they're affecting every day. I'm Still Here, coming Wednesday, October 18th from HuffPost. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague Jen Bendery. Hi. And my colleague Igor Bobic. Yo, yo. We're going to talk about Congress. Igor and Jen cover Congress, and Congress has got a lot of stuff to do. You may have heard some things about tax reform, but that's more of like a special project that Republicans are, are doing You know, as their passion. They have some more urgent duties, including disaster relief for Puerto Rico, Texas, and Florida. And in Puerto Rico... The situation is really dire. It's been like a month since Hurricane Maria went through there and people still don't have power, Jen? They don't. They Just today on the government's official site that updates statistics on what they have and what they don't have. And by today, you mean Thursday the 19th. I do. Um, <laughs> right now, 79% of people don't have power. And 29% of people don't have water. And this is day 29 since Maria hit Puerto Rico. So I did some comparisons for a little context. And so this would be the equivalent of Delaware having no water for a month and the equivalent of Nevada having no power for a month. Good Lord. It's it's actually Nevada, but yes, that's... Nevada. Yeah. (laughs) Now, now, what is the holdup? Igor, you... Went to this the Congress 
the U.S. Senate, the upper chamber, and ask people, hey, what's going on there? Is this response adequate? Uh, you know, just to me personally, as a human being who loves power, you know, electricity and, in my and house and water. and water that I can yeah. drink so that I stay alive, it doesn't seem adequate at all for U.S. citizens to be lacking these things a full month after a disaster happened. Right. Well, surprisingly, I found a different reaction amongst Republican senators on the Hill who said that FEMA, uh, the main federal response agency, was doing their best, Mm -hmm. that um, they had some issues, some unique special circumstances they were dealing with. They said that because Puerto Rico is an island, it was hard to deliver aid there, that um, they didn't have the existing infrastructure, the state and local emergency response teams to handle this kind of disaster, and that, you know, it really got hit by a huge, huge storm. And um, it was weird that they were saying all this stuff, given that a lot of them, most of them, haven't been to the island. Um, They haven't seen what it's like. I know a couple of them are going there. They're supposed to go there, but they have not seen. Um, One senator who had a a personal friend there described it as, as an absolute disaster, that they may, might not have electricity for another six to, to six months to a year. But even he, this is State, Steve Daines from Montana, said that um, FEMA is doing its best. I don't get it. Why not just say it's inadequate considering that it's been about a month and people don't have power or water? Well, the president has been, um, I, this may come as a shock, involved in a feud with uh, the uh, the mayor of one of the cities there, San Juan, um, and um, who has been accusing the, the government of, of insufficiently providing aid. And this whole thing has turned into a political thing, as usual. Um, and some of these guys, most of these guys, don't want to you know, cross the president on this. So that's the constituency they're worried about. They don't want to get into a fight with President Trump because he's the one who said, well, it's an island. So now they say, yeah, it's an island. And he says it's, it's tricky. So that they just adopt the party line. I, th- I think so. I think it's bigger than that because I think that for starters, people don't care about Puerto Rico generally in power in the United States. Even though it is part of the United States, it is not something that U.S. senators and members of Congress have devoted much attention to in the past in terms of helping them with infrastructure or um, helping to strengthen their economy. Um, So I think generally speaking, this fits in with a broader narrative about Puerto Rico being kind of a second-class territory and beyond that, I think Republicans just don't want to cross Trump at all because they're using him to try to pass their big pet projects like tax reform. So if they go after Trump on Puerto Rico and say, you're failing, you're doing a terrible job, people are suffering because the way that Trump is, as we've come to learn, he is uh, vindictive and will act out against anyone who says anything negative about him. So it's really – it's about tax reform then. There's one thing they really want to do and the one think, thing they want Trump for. I think that is the sentence of the year. Well, that is why Republicans are doing anything <laughs> this year. They are letting Trump get a pass on every single completely insane offensive statement he makes – well, in order to get tax reform done. As we know, once you cut taxes, this is, you know, economics says this. Once, well, you, cut yeah. ta- once you cut taxes, the water and clean air will filter down towards Puerto Rico. Classic yeah. supply side yes. economics. Right, exactly. So quickly, to just clarify, to be clear, for 100 years, people born in Puerto Rico have been U.S. citizens. But it is it does receive second-class treatment. It's not a state. There is no voting representation. 
Puerto Ricans don't pay federal income tax and get like sort of bastardized versions of federal programs. Even though they pay most federal taxes. Right. So they, right, right. I'm not talking about payroll taxes, which are huge, but they, they have shabby versions of everything that are, that are taken for granted in states like food stamps and Medicaid, for example, two programs I'm familiar with. And there's also things like the Jones Act, which is a law that requires any shipments that go into Puerto Rico to come from a U.S. port, that any shipments from a U.S. port in the United States mainland have to come on a boat that is U.S. made and U.S. operated, which in a nutshell means that Puerto Rico pays almost double the costs for all of its shipments. <clears throat> and so Trump had waived the Jones Act, but then – For 10 days. For 10 days. And there's a much bigger argument about this law, about how we need to get rid of it, how it disadvantages Puerto Rico. It costs them hundreds of millions of dollars a year when they're already struggling economically, but particularly in a time of crisis right now when they need help economically, this law is there too. That's just one more piece of how the United States government screws over Puerto Rico. Now, Congress is working its way toward approving an aid package that will give FEMA money to help Puerto Rico and the other places that have been affected by hurricanes. Igor, you've been following it. They passed something earlier that was a bit of a stopgap after Herma, Irma and Harvey. So what Herma. The, I, said, I caught myself. Herma. I said, I said Herma. Herma. Anyway, they passed something, but now they're working on a bigger bill with more money that would also include special funds devoted specifically to Puerto Rico. That's right. You've got a number of disasters in the last month, including the wildfires uh, out, out west that uh, that members of Congress want to address, and they've got a um, about a thirty billion over thirty billion dollars of an additional emergency funding they want to uh, pass. The House already passed this bill. It's now up to the Senate. Um, and um, they're looking to do it this week, although we don't really know. Um, one senator, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, obviously his state got hit pretty bad by two two hurricanes, wants more money um, in that package for his state. So um, uh, it it's, remains to be seen whether he gets that, but looking like a vote tomorrow. Marco Rubio, the Republican from Florida, wants money for Puerto Rico. Is that right? Because that's one of the places where uh, the Puerto Rican diaspora goes. That's right. Also, Congress is working on children's health insurance. This is a program that lapsed. Like they just let it, the authorization lapse. The program itself did not necessarily end in most places because it gives money to states for a period of time and states still have that money. But Igor, you've been following this as well. It's like what? Uh, millions of kids who get nine, their, nine, nine million. million kids who get this special subsidized health insurance. What's happening with that? Well, there's really two programs. There's the Children's Health Insurance Fund, which uh, provides coverage to lower to middle class income families and also pregnant pregnant mothers included with that. Um, and the community health centers, which also get funding from Obamacare. Uh, both of those programs, there are authorizations have lapsed. Um, meaning they they will need money sometime in the future, um, but not right away. Uh, what Congress hasn't done is reauthorize them, to make sure that money is going to keep flowing. So a lot of these, some of these states already, eleven uh, projected to run out of money by the end of this year. The situation is really dire in Minnesota, where uh, they're about to run out of money by the end of this month. So that's two weeks with uh, all this other stuff going on in Congress. Tax reform, obviously, tax cuts are the most important things going on right now. 
Um, I don't see how that's going to get reauthorized anytime soon. So it's going to have to be included in some big Christmas tree type bill, which is actually what people call it because it has to be passed by a certain deadline and members hang their ornaments on it. They they get projects and such that hitch a ride on this must-pass legislation. And that's what's going to happen with CHIP, you think? Probably. Uh, there's a couple other things in there, uh, you know, about other Obamacare uh, measures in there that are going to be tacked on, but most likely in December. DACA, too. DACA, that's right. There's Thank just a lot, of, a lot of issues. So there's, they're working on tax reform, which is the thing they love. But there's all these things that are basically chores for Republicans who control Congress. And there's also debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Like government funding. This is all going to be a mess in December. Oh, it's going to be a great, great Christmas season this year. People who work on the Hill should not have booked any flights home if they're, if they're like necessary personnel, right? And this is the norm now. This has happened this every, every year. Yeah. It didn't used to be like this, but it is now. So everything happens at the last minute in a hurried fashion in one giant bill that no one really reads. And they just pass it and leave like on December 23rd. What is unique this year, though, is that one party controls both houses and the White House. So, you know, in past years, you had uh, divided government. This year, you would expect there to be some kind of movement. And still, it's a shit show. Uh, it sounds like you're saying the, the party in charge is not competent. Uh, yeah, I could. You could. <laughs> you could say that. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Jen Bendery, Igor Bobic, Seasons. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Greetings. Uh, Happy Halloween. Bye. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Daniel Marins. Hey, everybody. And through... The wonder of technology. We have our other colleague, Jeff Young. I'm in space. Yeah, what? What? Where are you? In space, I just told you. Okay, so Jeff Jeff Young's disembodied voice is here, and I can barely fathom how we've made this happen. But anyway, <laughs> President Donald Trump said Obamacare is done, dead, finished, and then members of Congress are negotiating a deal to save it. It's a very confusing policy moment. Jeff, I, I was hoping that you could explain what's going on. Yeah, the, the politics and the practical stuff here, too, are also confusing. So let, let, let's be very clear about, about one like super important thing. Uh, 
Obamacare is not dead. The Affordable Care Act is still the law. The insurance still exists. And enrollment starts on the 1st of November, which is just like two weeks from now. So, like, if people are getting the message out there from the president saying, oh, it's dead, it's gone, like, I don't know what he means by that, but it's literally untrue. And if that's where you buy your insurance, uh, that's where you still should go buy it. Um, even though the, this administration is also not really going to advertise the enrollment period this year. So you can probably expect fewer people to sign up because few people will know that it's even going on. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the House passed a repeal bill a few months ago and they had a huge party at the White House afterward. And if that's the last time you tuned in, you might think that, you know, the Affordable Care Act isn't the law anymore. It is. And what's going on in Congress right now is, man, this is all so confusing. So Trump, Trump pulled a bunch of money out of the program a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, uh, what's happening in the Senate right now is there's a bipartisan bill. Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, the Republican, and Patty Murray, the Democrat from Washington State, who lead the Health Committee, uh, have a bill that they, uh, introduced on Thursday with 22 co-sponsors evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. Wow. Um, yeah. And the Republicans include Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, who sponsored the last attempt at repeal. Wow. So that's sort of, yeah, that, that, that's kind of significant because that makes it so that the, so Lamar Alexander and the other Republicans who support this bill can, can tell their colleagues, this isn't instead of repeal. It's maybe just a prelude. This is a stopgap while we keep fighting to repeal it. Maybe the voters will buy that. Maybe they won't. So basically what they're trying to do is, A, put back the money that Trump pulled out of the program that goes to insurance companies with very poor customers. B, put back the money that Trump pulled from the advertising outreach outreach and enrollment assistance programs that were part of the law. And in exchange, uh, what Republicans sort of get in this bill is insurance companies can sell uh, some really skimpy insurance policies to anyone that are currently only available to people younger than 30, the so-called catastrophic insurance. Um, and also states that want to monkey around with their healthcare systems, but still get money from the Affordable Care Act, will have a little more flexibility to do that than they do currently. That sounds a lot like what they wanted in the repeal bills that they were working on. I guess it's just on a much smaller scale with this. Well, no, see. The, okay. The funny thing is that most of the stuff that we're talking about here was actually in those repeal bills as a short-term kind of bridge away from Obamacare to whatever the new thing was going to be. In other words, the idea was let's keep these markets stable, as stable as possible and keep the prices as low as possible in the meantime while we come, while we, you know, build and implement the new system. What it's not, and this is, this is also really important, those repeal bills, the one that passed the House, all the ones that failed to pass the Senate, would have drastically cut the amount of money that goes to Medicaid and health insurance subsidies. A lot fewer people would have gotten help uh, getting coverage and therefore a lot, many, many millions, 20 million more, 20 million or more people who would have had coverage under the Affordable Care Act would not have had it under the repeal bills. If anything, um, the bill that was introduced in the Senate on Thursday would, would at a minimum kind of keep the number of people with coverage about where it is, um, and maybe even add a little bit to it. Uh, what's the, the oddest thing about this is how normal it would seem in a different political environment. You know, it, 
Congress throughout the entire history of the United States has passed laws and then things didn't work the way they were supposed to, so they tweaked the laws later. Um, that's really all that's going on here with the added, uh, the added weird ingredient of Trump doing a whole bunch of things deliberately to make the Affordable Care Act work worse. Um, and it's kind of telling to me that Democrats were able to get so much in these negotiations with the Republican uh, running the health committee. Um, Cause you know, I mean, this is a pretty reasonable, pretty narrowly, narrowly targeted thing that could uh, protect a whole bunch of people from huge premium increases if they actually get it through. So Jeff, Trump's been all over the place and how he's spinning this, but on Monday at least, he sort of tried to claim credit for forcing a situation that brought Republican and Democratic senators back to the table in terms of negotiating. Is there any truth in that, that Lamar Alexander, let's say, is more willing to play ball now that the CSR funding is cut off? No, not really. I mean, here's here's the background here. Alexander and Murray started working on this bill months ago right. before Trump even could articulate a position on it uh, to the extent that he's articulating one now, I guess. That's debatable. But uh, Alexander shelved it when it looked like the repeal bill might pass. And then almost immediately after it failed, they started talking again. That was only a few weeks ago. And it also was the product of a series of hearings that Alexander and Mary had in the health committee, uh, where they heard from insurance companies, state insurance regulators, all kinds of people who understand this stuff. And basically what's in their legislation is what those folks asked for. Um, incidentally, you've got a lot of governors from both parties who also want to see something like this happen because to put it really simply, all this kind of screwing around with the health insurance exchanges that Trump has been doing since he came into office has resulted in premium increases that are much higher than they otherwise would have been. And they already might have been high, depending on where you live, you know. So we're looking at instead of maybe a 5, 10, 15% increase, you've got a 15, 25, 50% increase because of things that Trump has done on top of the issues that these exchanges already had. Right. So everyone's always pretty much known what to do about that. What we're seeing now is a willingness on the part of at least 11 Republicans in the Senate to actually do those things. And, you know, I mean, it's think of it this way. Right. Trump seems to have this idea that he can like Daniel, like you were saying, oh, well, if I make things worse, it'll force people to negotiate, um, even though, like I said, these negotiations were already taking place before he opened his mouth. Um, but it's a really weird idea from where I sit that. The president thinks the public will blame the previous president and the minority party in Congress for problems with government programs rather than the party that's actually in charge of them and could do things to make them better. <laughs> Jeff, I have a question about the legislative process here. If they pass this, this thing, doesn't President Trump still need to sign it? He tweeted on Wednesday – I am supportive of Lamar as a person and also the process, but I can never support bailing out insurance companies who have made a yeah. fortune with Obamacare. I, is, is he just confused or is he making any sense with that? Well, I mean, first of all, as a general point, it's really hard to disentangle when Trump is lying and when he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, but more specific here, I mean, over the course of the week, he's taken like eight different positions on this, on this bill. Um, and, uh, when, you know, right before Lamar Alexander went to the Senate floor to talk about the bill on Thursday afternoon, uh, he 
said apparently that he just talked to Trump again, and Trump was like, "Yeah, keep going." So who the heck knows? Another thing to keep in mind, and you know, I, no, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, this thing, this thing would have a hard time passing the House because these guys are, especially the House, but because those guys are so, you know, just sort of focused on repeal and, and on undoing, you know, Obama's uh, uh, policy legacy. And Paul, and Paul Ryan but, said he didn't like it either. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, but but there's another thing going on, and there was a story uh, I think on Thursday in Politico that sort of set this up. Um, and our Matt Fuller wrote about this too, uh, in, in a slightly different way. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to get done between now and the end of the year. Uh, you know, spending bills, ex- extenders on tax stuff and Medicare stuff that, you know, usually Congress won't leave for Christmas without doing. Um, and because of all of these like super conservative guys in the House and a handful of people in the Senate, who, you know, won't vote for stuff that's not like really, really, really far to the right, uh, they're going to need Democrats to pass these so-called must-pass bills. This thing could ride along with that, especially since for a whole bunch of weird budget reasons that I won't explain unless you ask me to. No. This, uh, this Obamacare fix bill has a zero cost on the federal budget ledger. So, huh. y- yeah, you, you, you can add it to something else without having to offset it with spending cuts or tax increases or something like that somewhere else. That's free money. So this could go into some kind of like a big deal that Democrats are trying to leverage come December. What is a worst case scenario, though? And how would that play politically? Could that redound to the benefit of Democrats? Well, the worst case scenario for the health insurance exchanges in the short term is already happening. The insurance companies and state insurance regulators, they kind of figured Trump might pull this money back because he's been threatening to since like two weeks after he got inaugurated or uh, sorry, after he got elected. Um, so in most states prior to Trump announcing he was going to cut off these payments that insurance companies are owed under the law, um, most states let insurance companies jack up rates to compensate for the, for the money they'd lose. Cause basically the, I'll make this really brief, but these insurance companies have to give discounts on deductibles and co-payments and stuff to really poor people, and then the government's supposed to pay them back. What Trump's saying is he's not going to pay them back, but they still have to give the discounts. They're going to lose a bunch of money, right? So already, already, it's kind of baked into the cake. In fact, whatever might happen in Congress, it's probably too late to save anybody any money on insurance next year um, because those rates are already, you know, all, all the regulators have already approved next year's insurance rates. What this means, weirdly, is that people, low-income low people who get subsidies on the Obamacare exchanges, those subsidies will increase along with the premiums. So they won't actually see much, if any, rate increases for next year. The people who get, yes, the people who get screwed are the ones who make too much money to get subsidies. So they're going to have to pay the full increase or just not buy health insurance. And I have a sinking feeling that you're going to see a lot of middle-class families next year who just don't have any health insurance because it went from $800 a month to $1,300 a month because these insurance companies were afraid, as it turns out correctly so, that Trump was going to stiff them on the money they wrote. All right, Jeff Young, animatronic health policy Robot expert, thank you for teleporting your disembodied voice here from outer space. Uh, Daniel Marins, thank you for being physically here in the studio. As always. We'll be right back. So 
that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by former Army Sergeant and Afghanistan War veteran Richard Allen Smith, as well as HuffPost reporters Amanda Turkle, Jeff Young, Daniel Marins, Jennifer Bendery, and Igor Bobic. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. And if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.